Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawa, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawa. Today is Sunday, uh, November 13th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on in our program, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, we'll have dispatches on the announcement by the President uh, Felipe Nausi of the Republic of Mozambique, saying that the first shipment of liquefied natural gas has been exported uh, from the Southern African state. Farmers in Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, have discussed the impact of climate change on the production of cocoa. The United Nations envoy to Sudan has visited the country in an attempt to facilitate a political settlement inside the country. And the peace process in Ethiopia is the result of international effort encompass international effort encompasses both those on the continent and uh, within the diaspora. In the second hour, uh, we hear the 20th annual Nelson Mandela lecture that was delivered this weekend by Prime Minister of Barbados, Maya Motley. Finally, we will listen to a briefing from the Republic of South Africa President Cyril Ramaphosa in the aftermath of the recent National Executive Committee meeting of the ruling African National Congress. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, in the West African state of Ghana uh, with the music of El Haji K. Frempong and his Cubano Fiestas. Let's listen in.
It didn't. It didn't rain, Jaleo said as he inspected the ripeness of one of his cocoa pods. It's raining now, but it's already too late. Cocoa farming employs nearly 600,000 farmers here in Cote d'Ivoire, ultimately supporting nearly a quarter of the country's population. About 6 million people, according to the Coffee Cocoa Council, and it makes up about 15% of Ivory Coast's national gross domestic product, according to official figures. National production remains on track because the amount of land being cultivated is on the rise, but experts say small-scale farmers are hurting this year. For the cocoa tree to fruit well, rains need to come at the right times in the growing cycle. Coming at the wrong times risk crops disease. Some who are used to producing uh, 500 kilograms are looking at only 200 kilograms this year, said Jean Yao Bru, Secretary General of the Anoazi Cooperative, which helps farmers bring their crops to markets. Our producers have big worries with the production, he said. Listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. In the Republic of Sudan, the United Nations High Commission for Human Rights, Volker Turk, will conduct his official visit uh, to Sudan uh, starting today uh, through the 16th. Uh, Turk will, during his visit, meet with uh, President of Sudan's Transitional Sovereign Council, Lieutenant General Abdel Fattah El-Bahan Abdelrahman, as well as other high-level officials. He will also meet representatives of the National Human Rights Commission and civil society organizations, including women and youth groups, and representatives of United Nations and regional bodies, reads a statement extended uh, to uh, the international press. The top UN official will also travel to El Fashir in the northern Darfur region and will meet uh, regional officials, uh, representatives of internally displaced people, and civil society groups. This will Turks first official visit to Sudan since he became the UN Human Rights Chief. And also in Sudan, protesters holding placards reading no to foreign interference and Volker out in reference to the UN Khartoum's envoy Volker Pertes marched in Khartoum uh, yesterday. Thousands of Sudanese Islamists gathered on uh, November the 12th for the second time in two weeks to call out what they see as interference in the country's affairs. They are opposed to the United Nations' efforts to mediate between the Sudan's military junta and civilian leaders following last year's coup staged by General Abdel Fazer al-Burhan. Any compromise will bring this country into real crisis, and we, the youth of Sudan, do not want these parties and their agreements, protester Mohammed warned. If a government is supposed to emerge, it should be the result of elections. We will take the streets to the squares every day in every city and every corner to protect this country, to preserve its unity and its security. Note to foreign agents, Luar exclaimed. The protesters also expressed anger at a transitional constitution proposal by the Sudanese Bar Association which plans on banning activities by the National Congress Party, the Islamist movement of the former leader, al-Bashir. The army chief last week warned the Islamists to steer clear of the military, saying the army does not belong to any party. His warning came a week after some 3,000 Islamists staged a similar march in front of the United Nations headquarters. 
It comes despite repeated accusations from civilian factions that the army was colluding with the Islamists, pointing to the recent reappointment of Islamist figures in positions of power in Sudan. And finally, in regard to the uh, political situation in the Horn of Africa, state of Ethiopia, according to an editorial published in the Ethiopian Herald, following the peace deal between the federal government and the TPLF, several Ethiopian diaspora communities are expressing their happiness in various ways. As part and parcel of Ethiopia, most of them were seen actively engaged in peace advocacy activities, and they were publicly denounced in the intervention of other countries that had been catalyzed in the conflict for their own interests. Various sources indicated that the Ethiopian diaspora community that live all over the world estimated, are estimated about 3 million. Uh, though the diaspora communities live in various corners of the globe, they are always active participants in the nation's affairs, according to Wandasan Dema, Ethiopia's Diasporic Agency Public Relations Directorate. The diaspora is public diplomacy, as well as in mobilizing resources and investment, is on the right track. Diaspora Ethiopians have a great leverage to make positive and negative impacts on the political, social, and economic development of the country. Inputs uh, from the diaspora, a community served as an opportunity for the government to see internal as well as external issues from different angles. In addition, Ethiopia needs the diaspora to share its experiences in areas of democratic values and practices that have acquired over the years. Additionally, in times of no viable or capable opposition parties or lack of strong voice of homegrown civil society, the diaspora could play a constructive role. According to him, the No More movement uh, staging rallies against ill intentions of some nations interference in Ethiopia's internal affairs, as well as putting danger on sovereignty and benefit of the Ethiopia, is a good indication of the powerful role of the diaspora in overcoming destructive agendas of the external forces. The diaspora community in exposing the covert agendas and misinformation through social media platforms is the other area where Ethiopian sentiment was reflected within the past year. This is another manifestation of how powerful the voice of a diaspora is to protect Ethiopia's sovereignty and to sustain its unity. We hope their efforts will be continued. The efforts of the diaspora in sustaining peace through the country is still strong. From the very beginning, the crisis surfaced in the northern part of Ethiopia. The diaspora had been advocating peace, and in my view, that spirit is still alive. The Ethiopian diaspora agencies learned that all diaspora communities are supporting the peace accord and expressing their support in various ways. The recent demonstration in support of the peace accord conducted in various cities of the United States and the European nations are the showing case. In an exclusive interview with the local media, the Fan Ethiopia Task Force and Diaspora Belgium Community Coordinator Ephraim Zudu, on his part, said that the diaspora community across the world have been engaging in public diplomacy and informing world leaders about peace. The Ethiopian diaspora has played a significant role in the successful signing of the recent peace agreement between the federal government and the TPLF. According to him, the immediate task 
other diaspora should now be supporting all the peace activities that further cement Ethiopian unity and stability. We have to play a constructive role for this great deal, which is in the interest of the entire Ethiopian people. Concerning humanitarian help, he said, the Ethiopian diaspora community is actively engaged in support of Ethiopia's efforts. The diaspora is ready to mobilize resources to support affected communities by the conflict in Tigray, Afar and Amhara regions. The diaspora needs to disengage from the disinformation campaign against the peace deal. They rather need to support the full implementation of the peace agreement. And uh, to read more on the current uh, peace agreement uh, between uh, the Ethiopian government and the TPLF uh, that was negotiated in the Republic of South Africa and uh, finalized in the Republic of Kenya, all you need to do is uh, log on to the Pan-African Newswire. That's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, for uh, tonight. Uh, We'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, and research reports, as well as blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, this uh, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, just go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. Just love. 
Uh, that was uh, the classic sound of Earth, Wind, and Fire uh, from their first album. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, Earth, Wind, and Fire, their first album uh, produced and uh, arranged uh, by the legendary Charles Stepney of Chicago. And uh, right now, uh, we want to move into our uh, next segment, uh, which is a speech uh, delivered by Barbados. Barbados uh, Prime Minister Mia Motley. Uh, she delivered the 20th Annual Nelson Mandela Lecture just uh, earlier today. Uh, let's listen uh, to uh, this lecture by uh, Barbados Prime Minister Mia Motley. to see you. <laughs> Good afternoon. Mrs. Gracia Michelle, or shall I say Mama Gracia? Premier Namuso, I feel as though I know you already. Leaders of government, all. Members of the Mandela family. Members of the Zuma family. My friend who last hosted me 20 years ago on my last trip to South Africa. Trevor Emmanuel and his wife. Can I just simply say prof now? <laughs> and of course, the other members of the Board of Trustees of the Nelson Mandela Foundation and fellow, I can call you that in front of everyone now too. Some may say that it is because I haven't quite been able to get the... And if they say so, they're correct. But let me say good afternoon to all of you. And to say truly what a distinct honor and privilege it is to be here today. I want to salute our very own young Barbadian student, Oleta, who stood earlier, and her mother. You will forgive me if I feel a little old because her mother was in school with me. <laughs> it is a recognition of the passage of years. But let me start by saying how honored I am this afternoon. I truly consider this 
one of the privileges of my life and I say so with all humility because there are few people who I believe have stood out as a moral colossus on the global landscape and Nelson Mandela stood as one of those men truth is that I'm distinctly honored as well to be here in KwaZulu-Natal the Premier has already laid out why this location today is also special special for her as the first Premier of this province special for me as the first first female Premier of this province I should say special for me as the first woman leader of Barbados special because in a very real way this marked the red line in the sand given the arrest of Nelson Mandela in this province but special also because it is the home of Mahatma Gandhi who is easily equally in that pantheon of global heroes who have inspired us to a higher and better purpose in all that we do I do not believe that anything is therefore by accident and then to that extent I do not believe therefore that the message is inappropriate ill-placed or ill-timed for to be here in this place at this time to speak to this matter of justice and solidarity is in my view one of those things that can perhaps be viewed as preordained the battles have been long the battles have been strong and one of the things that I've come here today first to have discussion it's a lot of as I would say in Barbados a lot of long talk a lot of long words in the title but what we really come here to talk about this afternoon is justice fair play and solidarity people who don't normally have the power on their own working together and making that difference doing so in the context of calling upon us to summon that will for moral strategic leadership in really what will become not just the battle of our lifetime but the battle of planet earth my friends I must tell you that I come here today not as a singular Caribbean person dropping from the sky but as one who comes after the efforts of many across the decades and it may be useful for me to place context to that struggle to make two points before I get into the meat of what I want to speak with you and that is to be able to contextualize that in my own country from the father of democracy Grantly Herbert Adams in his early days both as Premier of Barbados and then as Prime Minister of the West Indies Federation and to those countries 
who took action in 1959 July after the All Africa December 1958 Congress in Accra Ghana where Barbados, Jamaica, Grenada and Dominica took action to ban South African goods in solidarity with the people of South Africa Recognizing that though there were thousands of miles away, there was an injustice being perpetrated. Man's inhumanity to man that required people who had little power to take a stand and to say wrong is wrong. And their efforts were soon followed. Months later in April of 1960 in our sister island in Trinidad and Tobago, where the dock workers of Trinidad refused to take the cargo from South Africa off the ships of April, in April of 1960 and refused to refuel <laughs> refuel the ship that had brought the cargo recognizing that even though they were dock workers and not capable of great and grave decisions they could do what they could within the space that they could. And their work was to be followed then, of course, by that titan of Caribbean revolution and social reform, Fidel Castro, El Comandante, who worked then with that other great Caribbean titan, Michael Manley of Jamaica, well known perhaps to many of you. And of course, our own father of independence, Errol Walton Barrow, who worked with Fidel Castro in the struggle for the liberation of the peoples of Southern Africa by allowing the planes that left Havana, Cuba to refuel in Bridgetown, Barbados in order to bring the troops into South, Southern Africa and in particular Southwestern Africa. And then of course there was the decision of the Commonwealth Heads of Government and I remember as a young law student in London caught up in the fervor of the anti-apartheid movement and caught up in the passion of wanting to see your own imagery on television because in those days you just didn't and when we saw the students of South Africa week after week rise up to take their future into their own hands. It placed the pressure on leaders like Margaret Thatcher and others, such that by the time the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting went to Nassau, Bahamas, a determination was made to establish the Eminent Persons Group. And in that Eminent Persons Group, co-chaired by Malcolm Fraser of Australia, and Chief Obasanyo of Nigeria, it also included a woman who was to become the first Governor General of Barbados, Dame Nita Barrow, who came here as one of the seven persons to determine whether there could be a platform for talks and for release in order to ensure that the ungodly and unconscionable actions of apartheid could be brought to an end. 
Regrettably, their work was to be stymied by the then government, but they were capable and able at the time to meet Madiba. And it is instructive what they wrote in their unanimous report about Madiba in 1986, and I quote, Having visited him on three occasions, what was their assessment? That he impressed us as an outstandingly able and sincere person whose quality of leadership were self-evident. We found him unmarked by any trace of bitterness despite his long imprisonment. His overriding concern was for the welfare of all races in South Africa in a just society. He longed to be allowed to contribute to the process of reconciliation. This was not post-release. This was not on the eve of release. This was still deep in the bowels of his imprisonment. And you know, I've deliberately decided to take a segue this afternoon before addressing the fundamental issues. Because it is important that we contextualize the struggle and the values for those who refuse to be reminded or who fail to be reminded or who are not reminded may well believe that this was as easy as dealing with the twinkle of an eye with the remediation and reparation of an awful thing. It hurt me to hear that there are some who believe that Madiba did not do enough. And perhaps worse for a few that he might have been a sellout. All because what they believe, justifiably so, should be theirs today is not yet theirs. I've deliberately started this conversation this evening by carrying you back to the 1950s and stopping in the 1980s and stopping again in the 1990s because if there is any one single truth it is that each of us runs our leg of the relay and the baton is all that can be required of us to carry And yesterday I had the distinct honor of going to the Foundation's headquarters in the Center of Memory and of reading, and I feel so privileged to be given copies of the transcript in Madiba's own handwriting, and I shall treasure them as long as I have breath. But in reading, his own assessment of where he was and what he 
believed had happened in what was to become the beginning of chapter 1 of the presidential years it was ironic that he started with the words men and women all over the world right down the centuries come and go men and women all over the world right down the centuries come and go what is more significant for me is that as he ended that first chapter he also reflected on the fact that he sought at no stage for the fame that was to follow him and that the notion that he could be regarded as a saint was one that he thoroughly rejected and the last words I never was one even on the basis of an earthly definition of a saint as a sinner who keeps trying my friends we need to pause sometimes and to remember context always and I do so because in a very real sense that which I have come to address you today on too is the subject of a great struggle and will be the subject of a struggle that will require many different people to run their different legs of the baton of the race to hand over the baton and the example of Madiba is the example more than any other that I would want us to hold on to because in so doing it is the values that he exhibited the moral example the moral compass that he provides that gives us both the strength and the capacity to run this race which will be the greatest race that humanity will require of any generation it stands out for me that at the very outset courage was never lacking it is a cause for which I am prepared to fight but a cause for which I am prepared to die how many of us can say that today it was the moral fortitude of a man that determined that no type of offer with special conditionalities for early freedom would be acceptable because what was required was justice it is amazing that in the face of the gravest and greatest in humanity not just to himself to his family to his people that the vengeance that would otherwise eat and force others into action was absent 
from his mind, body and spirit. And as I just read to you, from the evidence of the eminent persons group, not conveniently so as an act of politics, but as an act of character, deep in the bosom of his imprisonment. And then there's the story that was told to me yesterday by Cello, as we looked at the photographs of what his cell contained. And I well recall my own visit to Robin Island 20 years ago. And all who, like me, have practiced a little criminal law in my career, know that that is a common sight in colonial constructed prisons that had no sanitary facilities. And the humility of the man captured best in being able to ensure that when one of his own brothers was unable to take care of themselves in the most basic and human of ways that Madiba performed the duties of cleaning for him. An example of servant leadership if ever there is one. So forgive me if I have strayed a bit because I believe that in this world where everything is instantaneous and quick and where people expect results like that, we sometimes need to remind ourselves of the context of the struggles that we fight and to remind ourselves of what truly, truly was at stake. There are some young people who would simply now, three decades after his release, will only know of Nelson Mandela in the context of a history book or in the stories told by others, but would not appreciate what it is to be prevented from being able to love who you want, to work where you want, to live where you want, to do what you want in ways that are simply not capable of contemplation today. But we can't talk about economic justice and economic opportunity if the basic aspects of freedom have not been guaranteed. No one expects us to be stuck in a moment of time but it is the understanding that he did what was his to do. It is now up to us to do what is ours to do. And it is for that reason I have come to KwaZulu-Natal. You know, we live in a world that is at a very strange moment in time. It has been described recently as a polycrisis. And it has been so described because as soon as you get accustomed to managing one crisis, you've been hit with another one and another one and another one. And that is what it has felt like in the last few years. This country already knows what it is to lose people 
to the ravages of a public health crisis as you did with HIV and AIDS for so long then to have to face like the rest of us the awful pandemic of COVID-19 taken away so many all of us know people who have died in the last few years none of us dreamt of a moment when our movement would be restricted so such that we couldn't do the things that we wanted to do and this was not being imposed on us by authoritarian governments this was being imposed by public health specialists for the safety and survival of all of us and as if that were not enough because we were already fighting the climate crisis we were still recovering from the financial crisis of 2008-9 as if all of that was not enough then comes the awful scourge of the cancer of inflation the cancer of the cost of living and believe you me it is a cancer because you keep trying to run after it and run after it but you can't catch up with it in that way and we have now to come to understand that as much as we needed to mobilize to fight against vaccine inequity that we were not a one issue country or a one issue people that we literally had to fight these multiple crises because as all of this is happening people were still dying from the climate crisis I don't talk about the climate change change happened long time ago crisis is where we are and crisis is what we have to fight and today I want us to recognize that what is required of us is going to have to allow us to one develop partnerships in places where we may never have dreamt of so doing before and to be able to do things in new ways that we had never thought of doing and that the actions required are not simply those of others but of us because it is the collective action that has led the world to be where it is today there is no doubt that those primarily responsible for the increase in greenhouse gas emissions are the G20 countries for whom 80% of the responsibility is there within that context the traditional colonial powers who benefited from the industrial revolution through our blood our sweat and our tears have been the ones who have effectively put the world in this position of warming there is the stock of gases but then there are those who continue today for which there are many of us no name no blame because it's all of us and it is the combined effect of the stock primarily but yes the flow today that continues to cause the problems i want us to reflect on the principles of justice and solidarity and on the moral compass that madiba provided for us to understand that what requires is required of us is to be able 
to deconstruct and to reconstruct much of what we do. We have come to a stage where the evidence of the science is palpable. I didn't know when I accepted to do this speech that you the people of KwaZulu-Natal would have in this week of our Lord this year suffered additional damage. The second river breaking its banks in less than six months. The first one causing loss of life and damage. This one continuing the loss of damage. We speak in the shadow of Sharm el-Sheikh. A conference of the parties intended to see progress and action. Progress, I fear, not fast enough, but still yet there. But it is up to ordinary people to begin to place the pressure and to begin to participate in the advocacy that is going to make the difference. And why? The consequences of the climate are now multidimensional of this crisis. I spoke just now of the loss of life. I could easily speak about the loss of livelihood. I can speak equally of the loss of dignity, the loss of shelter, the loss of family, the loss of culture. The increased number of climate migrants that we will see moving across this earth. You know, it really hit me when a former governor of the Nigerian Central Bank said to me that 80% of Southwest Nigeria is above the poverty line and 80% of Northwest Nigeria is below the poverty line. And then you start to look at the realities of what people face on this continent and what people face in the islands of the Caribbean Sea, the Indian Ocean, the Pacific Sea. And we begin to understand that what is at stake now is real for people. Nobody believed that the people of Montserrat would ever have to leave their island because of a volcanic eruption. And the notion that climate refugees is something for others somewhere else is now proven to be a fiction. It is real and it is with us. And you here in this province have seen evidence of it this week. And in my own region last weekend in St. Lucia, the people of St. Lucia felt the ravages of the floods there, not the hurricane, the floods. In Belize City, a few days before, it was the hurricane. How many more hurricanes? How many more floods? How many more people suffering from drought as is happening in Kenya? Will the world endure and have to endure before action is taken? The difficulty is, and this is where the complexity of the conversation enters, is that it is not simply 
the commitments made on stage now that matter but it is the capacity to deliver on those commitments in my own country we have recognized that we needed to do our part and I have repeated over and over that in making those determinations we said use electric cars we'll give you a tax holiday two years we can't get the electric cars to buy we said let every owner of their own house be entitled to have as of right photovoltaic panels two and a half five ten kilowatts depending on the size of the house can't get the batteries to deal with the storage necessary to allow these persons to do it and that is why this week in Sharm el Sheikh I called not just simply for capacity to match commitment but also for us to ensure that we have a just industrialization you see the global south has for too long been the place from which wealth has been extracted and for which there has been no determination to put back in to the south the resources necessary to move from primary materials to finished product and if you're like us in the Caribbean where you're small you are not only price takers you have to hope you can get access to the product the pandemic taught us that with vaccines with ventilators, with other therapeutics because you're just too small to anyone to notice you and once there is global pressure on there will be winners and losers and small states count among the losers in those circumstances regrettably we have come to a point where the necessary capacity to make the just transition, a phrase that you know well here in South Africa, the just energy transition is no longer within our power alone. And it therefore means that we are likely to see more innocent victims because the reality between our capacity to manage that transition and to see it happen is just simply not there. I hope that with the granular discussions taking place that we can see more activity but the reality equally is this that it costs money to bring about industrialization and even when the global north seems to want to help us in the south the cost of so doing has been made so prohibitive by an unfair financial system that it is almost impossible to achieve with the level of returns that are acceptable and you know this better than I do in South Africa in the global north people will borrow at anywhere between one to four percent in the south you're struggling twelve and fourteen percent in today's environment when those costs are put into the business plan the rates of return from the project all of a sudden just don't look attractive enough and you ask yourself why is there that disparity 
in the cost of borrowing? Why is there that disparity in the treatment of our peoples? Why is it that during the emerging market crisis, the international financial institutions promoted a constant prescription of currency devaluation and higher interest rates and fiscal austerity and an end to public bailouts and there were sharp contractions and increases in poverty we saw in the nations who were so affected. But when their countries became the subject of the crisis, all of a sudden the prescription was different. No devaluation, zero interest rates, fiscal expansion, massive bailouts. You only need to recall what happened in 2008. You don't have to go much further. In fact, the fact that we are seeing interest rates rise from zero tells you and reminds you of where it went because of the last crisis. The disparity in treatment, regrettably, is one of the remaining consequences of the colonial order. And we in the South have to determine whether we will continue to be victims of a process that was supposed to have been dismantled in the post-World War II era with your own country coming almost 50 years after because of the apartheid system. It is simply not good enough. And we have therefore to change the discourse, not just to climate alone, but to the financial system that is underpinning and preventing us from being architects and craftsmen of our own destiny, rather than simply awaiting the handouts from others in the global north. You know, I would much rather <laughs> that I could be here talking other things today because then we would have a fuller conversation. But the truth is that it is that injustice and that discriminatory treatment at the core of the financial system, in my view, that continues to limit the promise of political independence and decolonization that was promised to us. Those who expect more of Madiba expect more because their own personal financial and economic circumstances have not moved with the pace that they might otherwise have accepted or expected. And it is for that reason that I believe that if ever there was a moment in time for the global south to rally around a cause, it is now. There are at least 50 countries who stand on the verge of a debt crisis as we speak today. It does not give me any comfort to say that the worst may yet still be before us. And I say so because one of the things that is necessary for those same younger people who wonder about Madiba's role is that the first thing we need to do is to moderate expectations and to bring context and reality 
to all that we do in today's world in this moment of a polycrisis I spoke already about the inflation I have not yet spoken but perhaps should about the sustainable development goals which is just simply our desire to have a better life and those are being frozen as the numbers who are going back into poverty increase as the numbers who face food insecurity increase and at the core of it I submit to you are a few things that we need to do differently one yes the reform of the financial system and I'll come back to that in what we call the Bridgetown Initiative but two I want to speak to us because we need to treat the government and governance differently and we need to appreciate that if we treated to the pandemic purely as a government solution most of us probably would never have succeeded but it was the national effort to fight those battles that have allowed us to come out today in far better shape than we were and that we were expected to be in when we went in and the partnerships now between citizen community and country the ability for those of us who are above the poverty line to give back and to give of ourselves in the spirit of Madiba <laughs> to recognize that it is not to government alone that this charge must fall and that our ability to help people through the cost of living crisis is within our capacity in a way that the climate crisis is not immediately within our capacity but we need to be strong to fight the climate crisis and if we don't fight the cost of living crisis as we fought the pandemic we will be that much weaker in being able to emerge successful and resilient from the climate crisis I ask us to ponder on these things because too often in today's world there is the determination that let us look to someone else and look at someone else for the solution when in truth and in fact our capacity and capability of working together can make the difference between whether someone sleeps easy at night whether someone eats during the day whether someone has access to shelter and I do hope that that when combined yes with the monetary measures that must be put in place quantitative tightening increasing interest rates suppressing demand bringing about hardship in order to be able to make the, press, the, the patient better where I come from I don't know whether you had a cough medicine here called Buckley's but we had one in Barbados called Buckley's it tastes bad but it works <laughs> and that was what your parents would tell you every day it tastes bad but it works and regrettably to control the, the cancer of cost of living it is going to require some suppression of what we do in order to tame the prices back down so that your salaries don't evaporate in the air but these conversations cannot be captured in 60 second sound bites or 4 inch columns and therefore we inhibit ourselves from being able to be successful 
in solving these problems because we don't have the difficult conversations with each other globally anymore because we are into a world of narrow casting, we are into a world of social media, we are into a world where we do our own thing in our own way when we want without reference to whether that will allow us to sustain the journey. Could you imagine if that was the approach of Madiba where you would be standing in South Africa today? Could you imagine if that were the approach of those others who fought, who fought, like Walter Sisulu and Alva Tambo and all of the others, where would you be today? But even when we get rid of that cost of living issue, the other reason why we need to reform the financial system is because we actually do need money to invest in human development. We're not a one crisis or a one issue person. Even if we think we're only doing it for climate, the reality is, as I said in Sharm el Sheikh this week, we cannot depend on the financing of education and healthcare with seven year money and ten year money anymore. Because it simply will not allow us to provide the best possible education to our children, who, quite frankly, deserve it and if there was anything that I could wish for globally it would be a global minimum floor for the provision of education and health care to all citizens under the age of 18 years old that's why we are human beings we don't come on this earth just individually prosper and see others suffer and you here know it more than most because of your struggles. And if we can therefore ensure that if we can borrow at reasonable rates of interest, the savings in the interest will finance many of the social programs that now go lacking in our societies because of an unfair financial system. I'm not talking about yesterday when the debt crisis has gotten worse. But two years ago, Greece and Ghana, same credit rating, but Greece borrowing at a fraction of what the government of Ghana could borrow on the international capital markets. For what reason? Because one is in Africa and one is in Europe? Geography? I do know about the safe assets, yes. But the safe assets are a construct of the international financial architecture that does not see us, does not hear us, and does not feel us. And that is why we have asked more and over and over that if you can, one, meet the immediate needs of the crisis by providing liquidity to those countries that most need it, to allow them to stop the bleeding. That's effectively what they're doing, stopping the bleeding. You can't operate on the patient while the patient is bleeding out. And thank God, the International Monetary Fund has the leadership that it does today, because without Kristalina Gorgiva's leadership, God knows what would have happened to so many countries if the rapid um, credit facility had not been there in 2020 when the pandemic first started. But the problem is that that was for the pandemic starting. 
and I described a polycrisis, which means that the need for additional liquidity is still there. And it begs the question whether there ought not to be a different approach to these issues, allowing, for example, a standard liquidity drawdown that will immediately stop the bleeding without questions, without conditionalities, because if the bleeding, if the bleeding continues, the financial crisis will eat in to our pockets, our bank accounts, our savings, our stability. That is what is at risk. And that is what happened a hundred years ago with the Great Depression. And God forbid that it should be our future and not just simply an example of our history. Similarly, we believe that it is important that the multilateral development banks and the World Bank, otherwise known as its proper name, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, needs to exercise greater risk appetite and to step up to the plate where it has not been sufficiently found during this polycrisis moment. Our countries cannot do it alone. And I don't say so with any rancid tone in my voice. I say so more as a plea now at this stage. The International Bank for Reconstruction and Development of the 20th century, with the crises of the 20th century, cannot be the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development of the third decade of the 21st century when the crises are different. You may ask why I'm spending so much time on these issues. Because these are the issues that will determine whether we can provide more financing for education to ensure that we can reduce the level of crime in our societies whether we can provide more financing so that we can provide health care to those who truly deserve it and who therefore can boost their immune systems such that they are not vulnerable to the next pandemic whenever it comes unnecessarily so. As we learned with the last pandemic, that it was the comorbidities that took out the weakest from among us. These are the unsexy things that some may have wanted Madiba to solve in five years, but require us to solve in a few decades. <laughs> and then there's the other unsexy issue of special drawing rights. Because when we ask the multilateral development banks to expand their lending to us at concessional rates, we realize that, yes, they can, as the capital adequacy framework recommends from the G20 countries, they can sweat their balance sheets a little more. But in addition to that, they probably will need the benefit of the special drawing rights to be able to expand their lending significantly as well. And as they do that, we ask them to remember that 70% of the world's poor do not live actually in low-income countries. They don't live in poor countries. 70% of the world's poor live in middle-income countries. And when you exclude middle-income countries from being able to borrow, you are effectively condemning the poor in middle-income countries to remain in, in poverty for the rest of their lives and to cement in intergenerational poverty. That is what we fight for. The notion that Barbados, Bahamas and the Maldives cannot borrow as a right from the World Bank in today's world in a climate crisis is so preposterous 
that it tells us that we need to reset and recalibrate urgently if we are to prepare for fighting these battles. My friends, you know, those last two things or three things that I spoke about are part of the Bridgetown Initiative. I've tried to break them down into simple terms because it is important that the energy comes from you as well to be able to say that this is a battle that must be won. Apartheid remained when it was the province of those in diplomatic arena and politically charged rooms, cloistered, even the UN. But when the children of this country determined that they were not going to be those guinea pigs to be forced into the language of Africans and took their future into their own hands and had a level of militancy that said not another generation the battle changed and the conversation changed the climate crisis is no different and if we are to ensure that these same children and their children and their children are to live appropriately in today's world then it is critical that this battle now be embraced at different levels. I can't imagine it would have been easy for Madiba to learn Africans, either emotionally or technically. But he did it. Because in mastering the language and mastering the understanding of the culture, he was able to navigate his way out of 28 years of imprisonment. I can't imagine that it is sexy for me to talk about financial reform on a Saturday afternoon in Durban when I should perhaps be out there next to the beach like the rest of the people I saw out there enjoying themselves. But if we are going to win this battle, then you need to learn what special drawing rights are. And you need to understand why it is that people in the south borrowing at rates of interest that are much, much higher than the people in the north. And you need to understand why the policy prescriptions for countries in the north when they face financial crises are different from the countries in the south. And you need to ask yourselves what is the common thread. <laughs> Especially at a time when many, many refuse even in the north to acknowledge the reality of the climate crisis. It is frightening, to say the least. And that is why, even in the Bridgetown Initiative, when we talk about mitigation, we understand that as a small country, we don't have a lot of space in the Caribbean, or in Barbados, or in the wider Caribbean to mitigate. You have considerably more here in South Africa, in the continent of Africa. But our belief is that mitigation, wherever it takes place on this earth, is necessary. And that mitigation, yes, can be driven by the private sector. And yes, mitigation will more attract the language of capitalists who see returns. And there's nothing wrong with that. And we must encourage mitigation. But what we say is that the mitigation ought to be something 
where we create a special climate mitigation trust, invest it with $5 trillion coming out once again of the SPRs, but allowing projects to bid from wherever they are on this earth, from here in Natal to wherever else, to be able to help bring down the changes and the impact of the greenhouse gases. Because mitigation is valid and relevant wherever it takes place on the earth. And therefore there should be no geographical limitations to where mitigation can take place. Now we can't be fairer than that, because we're not asking purely that the money come to us for mitigation. We're saying do it, do it wherever. But what must happen is that you must do it. And regrettably, what we are still getting is the standoff. And the standoff comes because mankind is so consumed with the geopolitics of today's world that we are forgetting the reality of the planet on which we live. And it is sad because at the end of the day, time waits on no one. And the climate equally is not waiting on anyone to minimize its impact on our living and our way of life. The reality also is that justice demands that someone pay particularly when countries who have no capacity to pay, no fiscal space, no balance sheet, cannot do so. And that is the big debate that now stands before us. Earlier this week, you may have heard me say that it is a major achievement that loss and damage has gotten finally on the agenda for conversation. Not that we've resolved it, not that we've settled the mechanism for it, but it is at least on the agenda. And I say so because it took Denmark in September and subsequently Scotland, New Zealand and Belgium in the last two weeks, however modest, establishing loss and damage funds to begin to say to the rest of the North Atlantic world that this is an issue, this is a conversation whose time has come. And I want to put it very simply to you, Trevor, if I live next door to you and every day I am dumping on your property, dumping on your property and the money that you had to send to school your children or to pay for medical care for your wife all of a sudden now has to be taken up to clean up the property because you can't sleep at night, you can't eat food in peace then you would say that I should be sued and that I must stand responsibility for the fact that I am causing you to spend the majority of your earnings on being able just to live. Well, private law acknowledges it and technically international public policy acknowledges polluter pays. But there is a fear of the developed world the former industrial economies, I shouldn't say in the, the former, the industrial economies, the former colonizing powers, who knew how they got there, to accept liability 
Because they believe that in accepting liability it will be open-ended. Well, as a former Attorney General I say we don't ask you for open-ended liability. But what we do ask you for is justice. And what we do ask you for is to recognize that we too accept as reasonable people that this is not a matter purely for the government or the state but that there are non-state actors, multinational corporations whose balance sheets far exceed that of many countries in the world and whose balance sheets get there by reason of the same pollution who have a responsibility to pay and I'm not into the bashing or bashness, that's not what I'm about but the Bible talks to us about tithing and the Quran speaks to us about giving back to those and we simply say that if you are going to make a hundred cents in profit, two hundred billion dollars in the last quarter alone some estimates explain that they may even reach two trillion dollars in one year in profits profits then you have a responsibility to put something on the table in a loss and damage fund for those who are now having to pay out, pay out, pay out, pay out, pay out. And the oil and gas companies are not there by themselves because those who stand behind them will be the banking and the financial industry and financial sector and the insurance companies who equally profit in the same way. Now I'm using this as an example as I've said over and over because the world is reaching a point where global public goods is going to become the most important conversation even as we fight this climate crisis. That is what the polycrisis moment has taught us. The pandemic. If we thought COVID-19 was bad, well I'm here to tell you as co-chair of the, of, the, of the Global Health Initiative that the antimicrobial resistance the reality of your going to a doctor or dentist for uh, uh, filling in a cavity or going to have a baby that you are at risk of infection that could kill you now if your body no longer responds to the antibiotics because there is a resistance that has naturally been built up and the pharmaceutical industry has not brought a new antibiotic to the market in 22 years. Fact, fact, fact. Why? Because the economics of antibiotics don't compare to the economics of pharmaceuticals that treat heart condition or diabetes because you need those for life and you only need the antibiotics for a course. The economics just don't work. These are the realities and the global commons that we need in order to sustain life and livelihood and quality of life for our people will require a different approach and therefore the notion of non-state actors predominantly companies whether oil and gas whether banking and finance whether pharmaceutical whether tech companies bridging the digital divide for education for young ch children all have now to step up to the plate to provide a global fund that allows those countries who can no longer access it but through lack of lack of fairness and lack of equity at the international level in the same way that you knew during apartheid in your own years it is it is regrettably a deeply colonial segmented system some may even argue it is global apartheid and who best to provide the example of moral strategic leadership for us to win this battle than Madiba
I say to you today that we have a solemn duty not just to look at governments not just to look at multinational corporations but also to bring to the table those who have large philanthropic foundations and for whom there ought now to be some form of global compact that allows them also many of them are doing it on their own but perhaps we need more structure to ensure that there is a blended approach to the provision of a safe global commons for all of our people on this earth to function and to live in harmony. We are not going to get there by the twiggle of a nose. We're not going to get there in a beam me up Scotty moment as I love to say. But it is going to require the mobilization of people like yourselves. And it is to happen at a time when much else that we have come to value as standards are also being questioned. No one would ever have thought that the United States of America would take days to count votes in an election. No one would ever have thought that the United Kingdom would have had three Prime Ministers in less than three months. And regrettably, none of us would have ever dreamt to see war in Europe after World War II again, so soon and so tragically. Mind you, it is almost as if they have forgotten that war existed in Africa and in the Middle East for decades. The world that we have come to know has changed upon us. And we will either decide, as people of the South, to be firm craftsmen of our faith and shapers of our destiny, or we will continue to be the victims as we have been for centuries. I would much rather have come here this afternoon to speak in the tone and with the response that a Trevor Noah would be able to do on a Saturday afternoon in Durban. But regrettably that is not my lot today. But suffice it to say that we have now to do the heavy lifting of educating our people at all levels of society and across all countries for a global movement whose time has come. It is up to us to make the bold demands, just as Madiba did. Not unreasonable demands, in the same way that he restrained himself from unreasonable demands. It is up to us to also walk the higher road, because those who have been the victims of discrimination must not allow themselves to be imprisoned by the actions of those who sought to discriminate before. Because that is a lonely and awful place to be. But what it does require of us is a fair and level playing field. And whether it is the reform of the financial system, whether it is the call for just industrialization, of the South, 
to position us to benefit as we transition how we live and what we want to hold on to in this climate crisis whether it is the practicality of the moment and forgive me if I address this for a minute because for many there is not a recognition that a just energy transition and a 2050 net zero still accommodates elements of fossil fuels, 20% of the energy mix globally. Natural gas, the clean bridge fuel, the hydrogen, but it does mean walking away from coal, and it does mean walking away from oil. But there are opportunities for natural gas, and there are opportunities for hydrogen. And perhaps the opportunities for natural gas may even be a little too much for a little too long only because of the intransigence and the reluctance of others to move with the rapidity of speed that has been needed in the last decade. But the reality equally is that we cannot turn off the lights on our people tomorrow purely in the issue on the, on the basis that we are doing the right thing because people must live and people must eat. It therefore means that that contextualization also needs to be there before people say, ah, no, no gas at all either. We don't have that luxury in today's world anymore. And we lost the right to claim that luxury by governments that failed to move in the last two decades. So my friends, How do we redefine the spirit of Madiba? How do we redefine in my own country what we have come to call sharing the burden but sharing the bounty? That we must all come together to fight the cause and share the burden. But remember that when the bounty is to be shared that it is all who must share in it. That the patrimony that is ours through the sea through the wind, through the sun, has been left to us not for a few, but for all. How do we create the intergenerational responsibilities that allow us to know that it is not one generation or one man or one group of people to run the race and to leave it as if that is the end of the race? I'm reminded of the words of the Talmud which says, we are not expected to complete the task but neither are we at liberty to resile from it. Ours is now the moment for the construction of a new global deal and a new social compact as Antonio Guterres said to you when he addressed you on the 18th lecture in 2020. But for it to be real, it requires the energy and the activism that Barack Obama spoke of in his lecture in the 16th. And for it to be real, it requires the example, not just of Madiba, but of the people of South Africa, who rose after decades of oppression, and who understood that they were fighting for their culture, for their land, for their people, and who understood that if they allowed themselves to be dominated by a new and foreign culture, 
that what would be left of them would be so little and that it might take centuries to recreate. Today, it is up to us to recognize simply that if we don't move now, that what will be left of our planet will be inhabitable, not for us, the majority of us will make it. Regrettably, some will go. But it is your children and your children's children who will now have to find, in many places, new places to live. I hope and pray that we will take the example of Madiba and the people of South Africa in understanding what is required to win mighty battles that are necessary for good harmony with the planet and with people. And in spite of all of the odds showed to them, and all of the odds showed now to us, we can do it simply if we try. The words of Black Stalin, a Trinidadian Calypsonian. But ironically, I want to leave you with another phrase. Because something tells me that the spirit of the world has been awakened and that everything will be all right. Thank you. Uh 
Welcome back, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and that was uh, the sound of uh, the Rotary Connection, uh, from the new Rotary Connection of 1971, a tune uh, sung by Shirley Walls, entitled Song for Every Man. And uh, this is the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for now, uh, the early morning hour of uh, Monday, November 14, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and we're going to conclude with some excerpts uh, from a briefing delivered uh, uh, earlier, just a few hours ago, uh, by uh African National Congress uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa and uh, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa from a National Executive Committee of the ruling party, the ANC briefing, uh, for this weekend. Let's listen in. Uh, we interrupting our programming now to take it to Nazrek, where the president of the ANC, Cyril Ramaphosa, is addressing the media. To reflect on extensive and thorough and productive matters that we've been in discussion over here, and particularly our work as the National Executive Committee. Over the past few days, we have had discussions on a broad range of issues, both political, organizational, and social that impact on the lives of our people. We've had occasion to look at what should constituting the political report that will be tabled at the 55th National Conference. We've also had occasion to look at what will form the framework or what is the framework of the organizational report that will be tabled at the 55th National Conference as indeed the financial report as well. We've also dealt with critical challenges of the moment, including the renewal of the African National Congress and how we can continue improving governance in all spheres and also addressing the economic and social needs of our people. This meeting has also had time to look at how we need to respond to the needs of our people particularly as they are faced by rising living costs, which is causing a great hardship for millions of South Africans. Like many countries around the world, we are feeling the economic aftershocks of COVID-19, the extreme weather events as a result of climate change, with the rains now continuing to cause quite a lot of damage in certain parts of our country. And we're also feeling the effects of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. These are having a particular severe impact on the life circumstances of the 40% of South Africans who are living in poverty in our country. These families and communities are struggling to afford various costs, be they education, transport, 
food and other basic needs. We as the National Executive Committee have noted the government's interventions to mitigate the impact of these developments. These interventions include the extension of the Social Relief of Disaster Grant until March of 2024, the temporary relief of fuel prices, the continuation of VET zero rating of key food items and the consolidation of our social security and protection system with social grants which reach around 18 million South Africans. This meeting has reaffirmed that we will continue resolutely to implement our program to tackle the triple fault lines of poverty, unemployment and inequality. This means that we will intensify our work to transform our economy so that it can create more jobs through the implementation of the Economic Reconstruction and Recovery Plan, including a greater focus on infrastructure projects. We are committed to maintain and, to the extent possible, to expand social security to protect the vulnerable and reduce poverty in our country. This must form part of our efforts to build a comprehensive social security system. The fight against poverty and the rising cost of living requires the provision of affordable quality basic services including water, sanitation, electricity and public transport. We also had time to reflect on the electricity challenges that our country is going through and have urged Welcome back. And uh, that was an uh, excerpt from a briefing uh, delivered uh, a few hours ago uh, from uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa of the Republic of South Africa on the ruling African National Congress uh, National Executive Committee meeting, uh, which took place uh, over the weekend. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for today. And uh, we're in the early morning hour of Monday, uh, November 14th, uh, 2022. And we've been broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the soulful jazz sound of Shirley Scott uh, from the album entitled Hip Soul. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. Thank you.
Thank <laughs> you.